Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of Challenge of Blackness and the forthcoming Blood, Sweat, and Tears that you can pick up this summer. Uh, Lou, welcome back, brother. Podcast number six. Is that where we're at? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Welcome back. And and congratulations uh, on the book drop. I see it. It's on Amazon uh, and the the cover is really nice. Uh, I can't wait to pick that up. Yeah, you can get your pre-orders in now on Amazon, Black uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the history of black college football, all the stuff after the colon, you know, that's the important stuff. Um, but this has been a mad, hey, man, it's been a, like a week or so. We've been in the middle of uh, trying to grind. You're trying to finish your semester. We're in the middle of our term up here in the great north. Um, but yesterday, before we get started, let's talk about Tiger Woods for a quick second. Um, uh, he's back. That's all we can say, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's back. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't. This is like the weirdest conversation. One, I I don't watch golf. I golf like once a year, like whenever uh, the dean invites me uh, to be that athletic guy on the golf course. I I go, <laughs> um, and that's just like look, look, listeners, uh, young young professionals out there, get yourself a cheap cheap golf clubs and when someone invites you go um but i often don't go a lot because it's so dang expensive and it takes so long um but yeah tiger tiger won and and the internet went crazy and i'm still trying to figure out and i've been trying to figure out this for a long time like why do people like tiger so much this i mean beyond the fact that he's great at golf do you have any reasons why I mean, I, I well, I know why black folks like him, right? Because, you know, despite his own personal claims to uh, a multiracial uh, identity, uh, we, uh, the black community more broadly, sees him as uh, one of their own, whether he accepts it or not. And I think he can get away with that and the community accepts that and, and, and really, you know, um, supports him in part because he's in this predominantly white sport um, where it's like basically Tiger Woods and a couple of other guys uh, who are in the bottom of, you know, kind of holding on to their, their tour card. And so for us, man, we like to see black success, right? Like it's like Issa Rae, I'm rooting for everybody black, right? Whether they rooting for us, we rooting for them. Um, but on the flip side, I think, why do you think he's so popular with, I think, broader white audiences? I think that's also interesting as well. Right, right. Like, no, you nailed it with the with the uh, the black fans, right? And that's always been like this push, right, to to see a black golfer in there, whether it's a Charlie uh, Charlie Sifford or a Bill Spiller or Lee Elder, right? Tiger rests on that generation, and and people celebrate that. But white fans, I think part of it, and and I don't want to get this wrong, but part of it is because he's black, but he he kind of disclaims that, right? He's that safe friend that you have. Um, Right. And and yeah. it makes you feel comfortable uh, without making you feel uncomfortable because you're in his presence. He's great. He's cool. He's like the, the dude, bro. Um, and and he and part of it, too, with him and golf is that while there there were more blacks golfing after him. Right. And, and right. now you got to share space on this kind of on the Muni courses or maybe if you're going to like a really nice club. 
But in the field of sports, unlike other, we'll call Tiger a barrier breaker, there's not a wave of athletes coming after him, right? So it's just Tiger that you have to deal with. And I think that, that you know, that's part of it. This, you know, he, he's the black guy you could root for. I'm not racist. But also at the same time, there's not more of them. So you don't have to worry about, um, you know, just kind of being challenged by someone else's blackness. Yeah, they're not, I mean, there's no, at least uh, anytime soon, there's no fear of black people taking over the sport of golf. I think that there was, when he first came out in, in the late 90s, um, there was this tremendous interest among young black people about getting into the game of golf. And I think, as you noted, um, I know the Tiger Woods Foundation has done an excellent job uh, with the first T program, I believe it is, um, of getting young um, African-Americans uh, introduced to the sport, but being introduced to the sport, playing recreationally and being good enough to earn a tour card are two totally different things. Um, and we haven't seen uh, that kind of wave that I think uh, sports commentators uh, anticipated uh, when Tiger Woods first hit the scene in, in 97, 98. Uh, but, you know, the fact that he's had you know, multiple back surgeries, knee surgeries, uh, his own personal failings in in the public realm with the, the divorce from his wife, um, to come back from all that uh, and to win on the other side of 35, on the other side of 40, uh, is a testament to how really good at golf this guy is. So uh, salute to him. Um, but what are we talking about today, Lou? Oh, we're going to talk about our favorite subject, the white athlete, and more specifically, the white ally. Um, And the reason why we're doing that is because uh, the barrier breaker, we'll just call him a barrier breaker, right? Um, Kyle Covert, right? He has that piece uh, that comes out in the Players' Tribune about his his white privilege. And the reason why I call him a barrier breaker um, in this context is when we talk about white allies in sports, right? Especially white allies who, who try not to center themselves as much um, and acknowledge their privilege at the same time, acknowledge that there's racism around them and they, they hadn't done something and they have to do something. There are very few white athletes who have ever done this, right? And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when we, when we talk about sport, we talk about the white athlete or we talk about white al- allies, it's a totally different conversation that we have than uh, when we talk about black athletes or, or barrier breakers, right? We could tell you about the Jackie Robinsons. We could tell you about the Mary Motley's, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when it comes to white al- white athletes, we rarely do this. So I'm just going to call uh, Kyle Cover a barrier breaker. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss you know, why what he said resonated with so many folks, why, you know, it was trending number one. I even chimed in, but also we'll give you some of the history on white allies. So um, before we get into that history, let's talk Cover. What'd you think about his piece um, about his white privilege? Well, I thought it was, um, I I thought he made some, some really uh, great and important admissions, right? Where he acknowledged that his first thought when uh, his teammate Thabo got uh, uh, harassed by the police and had his ankle broken in New York, uh, I want to believe two years ago, um, his first thought was, well, he had to have done something, right? And that's a, a, that's a hard thing to admit, right? Because what, what he really gets at with that admission, at least in my mind, is the assumption and the thing that we see play out is that, that any interaction with the police in which uh, which African-American community claims police brutality, the 
the default response is by large numbers of whites is, well, he must have done something, right? And so by acknowledging and admitting that, we are, he's able to really, I think, um, reveal a lot about his character and his personality to say, look, that is the entryway to him explaining his privilege, as he talks about in terms of talent. Like he sees that his whiteness realizes that that if he had been in that circumstance, he would have not, uh, he feels that he would have not had the same thing happen to him uh, in New York on that evening. Uh, and so I think that's a very powerful admission. And at the same time, it's not much, it's, it's not really that groundbreaking because black folks have been saying that for decades. Right. <laughs> right. Centuries. Right. right. Like we've been saying this is I mean, our whole story about African-American history is that like, look, we are not getting uh, equal treatment uh, when it comes to any number of areas. Uh, but when white people say it, it becomes uh, a larger story in part because of their position and because of the privilege, which he admits. What did you think? No, no, I think you're dead right, right? That idea that I think that was the powerful part, right? That idea that he admits that that there's a certain privilege that he has um not having to deal with the the situations that his black teammates have to um a certain privilege that he has looking like the fans. Um I also thought about like, you know, what Culver did is and we'll talk about this when we do the history is part of like why we celebrate the integration of sports, right? This idea that when you have black and white together, not only does it prove that they could be together on the field, but it's like those teammate moments, right? Um, and sometimes like in Hollywood, we glorify that, right? If you're watching 42, oh that's yeah. the uh, moment, right? Where they're, you know, they're <laughs> taking a shower together. Or if you're watching like, remember the Titans, right? You know, they're, that's that, you know, what is it? Left side, strong side. That's Gary and Julius, that bond they have. Yeah. Um, and then we also have some of these things. We talked about this in, in a little bit, like recent moments where being in the round, the black teammate shifts you politically. Um, so two great examples of that, um, that I thought of in, in this moment, we talked about this are, um, Bill Bradley, right. Mm -hmm. and, and Jack Kemp. Um, and I think in this moment, Jack Kemp's story is really interesting because Kemp, um, you know, Kemp's, you know, GOP, Kemp's Republican. But in the 60s, he had black teammates and and he went through these moments. Right. Yeah. 60, early 60s. He's he's the quarterback of the San Diego Chargers. And, you know, he tells a story where there's hotels where they couldn't stay in. Um, he's part of the San Diego Chargers when, you know, black folks in Houston wanted the Chargers to, to boycott a game in Houston because of segregated stadium. You know, the Chargers played and and the coach was like, next year, we won't do this because of the position it, it puts our players in. He's there in 65. Jack Kemp is um, in New Orleans when 22 mm -hmm. uh, black players from the AFL uh, boycott. And he's actually what's interesting about it. He's hanging out with some of them that night and he's <laughs> they're going from spot to spot like sunshine um, and remember the Titans. Right? <laughs> right. And in that one scene of remember the Titans when they get kicked out, it's this big deal. But on that night, um, he's going with uh, I want to say um, Earl Warlock. I might be messing up his first name as Buffalo Bills teammate. Mm -hmm. And they're getting kicked out from place to place. And the response is, not like, hey, let's let's fight this. The response is, let's just go somewhere else until we get in. And eventually, you know, enough of his teammates, this black teammates at the All-Star game, had gone through this where they say, you know, we're not even playing in this city. And there's this interesting article from what the early 90s yeah. that has him talking about it. And he was like, look, I 
you know, I wish I would have done more. My, my teammates, you know, being around these black, black teammates helped me get here, even though, you know, he's a, a free market guy, a Reagan guy. Um, mm-hmm. But I wish I would have done more. And I think that's part of the strength in what Culver is doing is that his, I wish I would have done moment, done more moment is coming at a time where he's still in the league where he still has a platform uh, to deal with these things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, you talked about Jack Kemp as, as part of the GOP. I think you could say uh, for for some of our listeners who remember when Bill Bradley uh, ran, who played for the Knicks uh, in the 1970s on the national 1972 title team, and it was a, a All-American at Princeton. Um, you know, Bill Bradley, uh, you know, talked about that that experience really shaped him because he come in the early 70s. And this is kind of the interesting thing. And maybe we'll talk about this at some point later on in another podcast. But the the NBA is this fantastic league where, you know, it is majority black early in the 70s, unlike any other professional sport. So it's not just a sense that we've got these black pioneers, that by the early 70s, it's a league that is majority black, like 52% by, I want to say, 1970 or 71. And so, you know, he talks about that impact on him and his broader politics and his political ambitions, which made him, in many ways, he had a very similar story to the way we think about Bill Clinton, the way he used the Little Rock um, uh, uh, the Little Rock Nine as part of the kind of touchstone for his racial narrative. Um, Bill Bradley used his black teammates. I also want to say before we before we move on to the history, I want to say a little bit about uh, Cal Corver's not only his position but his position as a white player on the Utah Jazz, right? Because right. you know what precipitated some of this was not only was the uh, a dust up between Russell Westbrook and a Utah Jazz fan. And when they, uh, when the team, when the Jazz, uh, and when when Corver talked to his teammates, uh, according to the article, he's like, they closed doors and they like, man, you know, we hated coming to Utah before we started playing here, right? Because they saw this as a place that was one of the most hostile cities to towards black folks in terms of just kind of the way the city's racial makeup and whatnot. Uh, and so I thought it was also very courageous of him to kind of take some of those closed door meetings and brought and bring it forth and know that he's a fan favorite in part because he plays uh, in Utah. And so I think there's a, there's a great opportunity that he used. And like you said, he didn't wait a decade, wait till he's retired, but he did this while he's in the course, at least the tail end of his career. Right. And I think real quick on that note, what he did too was his piece comes after uh, the fact that his owner, you know, she spoke out and she was like, this is not who we are in Utah. And it's clearly like, yeah, that's who you are. Right. And, and I think <laughs> look, they did a great job in suspending that fan, but they did, you know, the movement a real disservice when they were, you know, essentially when she was essentially saying, this is not who we are. Like you have to be able to at least acknowledge that your town people feel uncomfortable in your town like this mm-hmm. for the since the beginning of the jazz like black players have felt uncomfortable in town like i get it you got thorough bailey and carl malone who who kind of fit in that area but most players don't you know don't fit in and maybe uh you know modern day like donovan mitchell seems seems to be doing okay there but right. at, but at the very least you have to acknowledge that and i think look it would have like been tough right for utah to oh you know salt lake city to to to, to hear that you know their, their city's a bit racist uh but i think you need to hear that time for time right it's it, it's something that makes you kind of reflect mm-hmm. um about what's going on instead of saying yeah this is not who we are let's move on 
But this question, I think you're right. And I think this notion of like who that's not who we are, I think speaks as is a good way to kind of transition into the broader history of, of this of white allies, right? Because really, you know, what we see uh when we think of white allies and and the black athlete, we really point to this kind of post-World War II moment in which um, you know, when white white athletes come out to support um, black players, uh, black teammates, um, they do so in the name of equality and meritocracy, right? Because they say, this is not who we are. We don't believe in segregation. Um, we don't uh, believe in discrimination. And we're going to show through through the lens of sports that what we are, uh, this a broader American commitment to equality and meritocracy. Right, right. And I think that's the way you have to look at it. I do this a little bit in uh, Shameless Plug Time in my book, We Will Win the Day, right? Chapter two is all about the white allies. And one of the things I realized when when studying these moments, so when I'm writing this chapter, I, I try to get to those major moments where either the white athlete or the white student stood up for really you know, what's a big deal, but really like one or two black athletes, right. To be able to play against that Southern team, like Penn state taking their three black athletes or whatever to, to the cotton bowl. Mm-hmm. Or, um, in 1948, the white athletes from Yale nominating Levi Jackson, the captain of the team for the 49 season, which is a huge deal. Or Virginia white athletes voting to play against that one black player, Chet Pierce in Charlottesville. Uh, what you see in all of this is like this very self congratulations amongst mm-hmm. everybody. Like this idea that that look, I understand that that you you know America is racist and and that's down there in the South, right? Mm-hmm. You know where there's Jim Crow, but here we can move forward and and it comes from these white athletes, right? Where they you know really tell the press that we did the right thing, we knew we had to do the right thing. It comes from the press who who celebrate these moments as like these biggest moments in sports. Um, and part of that too, I think when it comes from the press is that there's this idea where you understand that civil rights is coming, especially post 47 when Truman, um, has his, what, uh, what is it to secure these rights, right? Mm -hmm. 48. Um, Yeah. 48, where he has that legislation out. And even before that you have FPC, FEPC legislation. And part of it is to suggest that, wait a minute, maybe we don't need government intervention. America's <laughs> so great, right, that we could uh, we could do this on our own, right? And, it, mm-hmm. and it's going to start with sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really like piecemeal. It's these one or, or, or two moments, um, you know. Where, you know, like I said, at Penn State, at Lafayette, where, where they actually don't play um, in, in the Sun Bowl, um, at, you know, at Yale, um, that, that we celebrate – um, and then that's it, right? The rest of the society stays like racist, right? Even Levi Jackson, 20 years later. Um, so again, Levi Jackson nominated the Yale captain in 1948 for the 1949 season. 28 years later, uh, when they're talking about the uh, revolt of the black athlete, right? For the 1968 uh, Mexico City games, he's he says in the press, like, yeah, uh, I was discriminated against on campus like daily, right? But in that moment <laughs> in 1948, he's this hero. He's the symbol um, and part of that is because white athletes and white students like stepped up. And and even if you think about something like Penn State, right, who 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 they vote to uh to to not go to the to Cotton Bowl, right? Um, because their black players would not be able to play. But even in 1966, right, they go to the Citrus Bowl in Florida 
and they play the University of Florida and Florida puts Confederate flags on their helmets, right? So here you are, like you have this big moment in which we, this idealized moment at Penn State uh, in the 40s is this idea of democracy. And here you are almost two decades later, the, a, a Penn State team that still has a small number of black players um, who will now play against the University of Florida and Florida is like, we got to uphold the Southern honor and tradition, right. By play, you know, by fixing the Confederate flag to both our uniform and our helmets. Right. So there's always this tension. And this is that tension is also why we, we pay attention to these white allies, right. Because we think of that Florida reaction, that Southern reaction as the norm. And I guess today on uh, what is Jackie Robinson day when we're recording, right. I mean, the most notable person of course is Branch Ricky, um, who is both uh, should be lauded, but also uh, critiqued in many ways for for his uh, his positions. And you know, go ahead and tackle uh, Branch Ricky since you the, oh since you, since you since you got the chapter on uh, white allies. Uh, yes, Branch Ricky shows up in chapter two. Um, anyway, I think you're right. Like one of the critiques, we'll start with the critiques of Branch Ricky, and this is the easy one. It's like, why did it take so long? Right. Um, and part of Branch Ricky's story is that he tells the story of what his black catcher, uh, when he's what, uh, Ohio Wesleyan, right, where they're um, discriminated against a hotel and they stay in the room and the catcher's crying, like, why do my skin has to be so black, et cetera, et cetera. And Ricky tells this story as this kind of aha moment. I'm going to do something about this, but that comes 40 years later, right? <laughs> um, right. And, and he couldn't, there's, you know, he signed Jackie in 45. But earlier, so October 45, but earlier in April, there's this black writer, um, Joe Bostic, who who um, a, who brings two black players to the Dodgers spring training camp. And Ricky blows a stack, right? He's Because part of the reason why Ricky's mad is on the one hand, this black writer had this audacity to kind of put him on front street about integrating his team. The other hand, Ricky loved that white saver complex, right? This mm -hmm. idea that he's going to be the first, he's going to do this and he's going to gain all this glory. And that we, we mentioned 42 earlier that comes out in that movie 42, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where he's some, somehow this kind of savior in this moment when he's had opportunities to sign black players. Um, right. And he didn't, but you know, he signed Jackie and look, the black press to, to be clear, for the most part, looked at him as Abraham Lincoln, right? Like right, they yeah. literally wrote him as Abraham Lincoln more than any white ally, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. Paul Brown, uh, the Cleveland Browns, mm -hmm. or one of these various coaches who, who help their black athlete kind of integrate a situation. It's Branch Rickey who gets that um, Abraham Lincoln treatment. Yeah, and he gets it because in part because baseball is still the pioneering sport, right? You know, um, and there was this, you know, there's this tremendous tension that you talk about in your book. That's uh, that's in um, the the one thing that I do like about the 42 is that it, it talks about Wendell Smith and the Pittsburgh Couriers kind of whole campaign. Um, it doesn't it doesn't allude. It kind of alludes to, if I may be correct, that you know that 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 the Communist Party had. Uh, uh, that they Lester had Rodney, they, right? So, yeah, Lester Rodney was pushing for yeah. right. They're all pushing. And so there's this broader kind of thing. But as you note in your work that he's like, you know, Branch Ricky was like, nah, there was no pressure groups, right? There was no pressure groups that made me do this decision. It was all my idea. Um, and I think that there's a sense that, like you said, that there's a certain kind of white savior complex um, that we see. 
The other issue I, I think that I want to highlight uh, in this moment that I think is a, a great analog to Cal Corver is Alice Marble, right? When right. Althea Gibson, the great tennis star and FAMU, uh, uh, Florida A&M University graduate, um, is, is destroying the ATA, the uh, Segregated Black Tennis Association, the American Tennis Association, that she wants to play in the U.S. Uh, uh, LTA, the United States Lawn Tennis Association, and they keep denying her the opportunity. And so in 1950, uh, Alice Marble, who had won several Grand Slams in the 1930s and won over a dozen uh, championships as a singles player, uh, one of the great uh, uh, women's players uh, in tennis in, in the 1930s, goes writes an essay in the American Lawn Tennis uh, Magazine where she calls the association, the Lawn Tennis Association, hypocrites for denying her an opportunity to play. Their point is like if like you know her skin should not determine whether or not she's good enough to to win. Like let her get on this playing field uh, uh, on this court and and show what she's got to see if she's any good. And at this point, you know, uh, Althea Gibson hadn't lost since she was like 16 years old or 17 years old as a for like 7 years on the ATA championship circuit. And so she was trying to prove herself in this moment, in this broader moment. This really uh the US uh, Lawn Tennis Association will eventually adhere to um Marbles uh you know, claims and listen to her uh, suggestion that they give her an opportunity. And this will eventually open the door to Gibson, you know, winning Wimbledon in 52 uh, and the U.S. Open uh, later on. And so I think that's an important piece of way we can see someone using the pen in an essay to really kind of open doors uh, for black athletes as they're using their kind of white ally uh, status. Right, right. And uh, real quick before we talk about that, uh, Althea wins Wimbledon in 57 and 58. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, no, no, we, we correct on the fly. That's that's the professor. Yeah, that's there. good. Yeah, that's good. There, there you go. So so if you were about to email us and say we got it wrong, boom, we, we just got this. Uh, but, no, I thought that was Alice Marble. I think she's so unheralded, right, for what she did to, to really use her privilege um, in a way to – to give somebody else an opportunity, right? Even mm-hmm. though giving someone else an opportunity might take, take, take away from her, might, you know, compete against her um, or other people that look like her, that idea that you recognize that, that you can do anything you want with that white skin. Um, now mm-hmm. she was obviously, she was a woman, so she's kind of restricted in, in, in that fashion, but still that like, to be clear, when we talk about Culver, Kyle Culver had an Alice Marble moment, right? The question mm-hmm. with Kyle Culver, what comes next and, and what we'll talk about now with some of these other new age white athletes is like, what are you going to do with these black activists? Right? Because what Culver is doing is so much different than say a, a branch Ricky or um, these college players in the, in the forties and the fifties and the sixties, um, what he's doing is he's stepping into like an activist movement, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, the, and there, and, and that notion, there's only a few, right. Who are, who are going to weigh in, like very few white athletes are stepping in during the civil rights movement. In fact, Jack Kemp was saying, look, say like, I didn't do this. Right. Right. Um, like I wasn't marching with John Lewis. I should have, but you know, <laughs> this is my opportunity now. So, so how, you know, when we think about these white athletes who, who have stepped in this activist moment, like the most famous one to my, comes to mind uh, just for being a presence is Peter Norman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the 68 Olympics, when he wears the Olympic project 
for human rights button on the stand with John Carlson, Tommy Smith. And when he comes home uh, to Australia, he gets a lot of crap for that. Um, yes. Um, and then today you have athletes like, uh, is it, am I correct when I say, when I call him Chris Long, is that, is it, you know, Chris Long, right? Who, yeah. Who, um, again, we, we, we give them credit for just kind of being in that presence, but you know, Chris Wong for, for putting his hand, uh, around some of his kneeling player athletes and then also donating, um, a whole season's worth check. of checks, yeah. right? Yeah, like yeah, like a whole season's worth of checks, right? To to various causes. No, I mean, I think that's really the interesting part, right? Like when we when we were putting together this cast, you know, took thinking about um what you know where we should take this historically, we found we got you know we could do hours of discussions on desegregation and folks like Branch Rickey and and Levi Jackson's teammates and Alice Marble, but when we get to that next level, like how does one actually support right. black? activism it is much a much smaller uh cohort of folks and it's interesting because kyle corver is kind of sitting at the in the middle ground between um the older model about supporting and talking about opportunities and using their privilege to raise awareness and is he going to move personally move into this other area of Chris Long, where now I'm going to actively do something to support some of the causes that my black teammates are raising, are using to raise awareness to these various issues. Right. So, you know, that's a tricky spot that we don't know. Right. And I think that's it, that he's also um, called out in that essay, the ownerships, right? Like the owners of the leagues need to, to, to not only of this, of the Utah Jazz, but the various owners need to to do more to listen to their players, but also support them. I will say that the NBA has been, um, they're not, I wouldn't describe them necessarily, the owners as progressive, but they've been light years ahead of the NFL and Major League Baseball on some of these issues. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that there's a space for that to have that conversation to happen in the NBA that is much more difficult to have, to have uh, in the NFL. Right. And, 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 you know, the NBA recognizes, I think where they're a little bit stronger is they recognize that they're a black league. Right. And so they're they're They've, they've been ready for this moment. They haven't done a great job. I think at all times they've been ready, but um, like while we're talking about these modern day white athletes for, um, you know, supporting activists, like I would kick myself if I didn't mention, if we didn't mention uh, Megan Rapino, right? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Women's soccer player who was actually the first player to, to kneel um, in support of cap. Right. Right. Um, and she did it for various issues, not only to support, you know, his, his anti-police brutality movement, but also, uh, LGBTQ rights, and also um, Lindsey Whalen um, of the Minnesota Lynx, who, mm-hmm. who, if you look her up, when you put up Black Lives Matter, there she is standing with her Black teammates, right? A month before CAP. Um, right. With the shirt that says, Change Starts With Us, and then they have names, I believe, on the back, Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling, right? Mm-hmm. And so that she was part of the Black Lives Matter protest with her Black teammates. And I think this is important to realize, right? And and when we talk about Kyle Culver, um, I know I mentioned he had his Alice Marble moment, but he also had his Lindsey Whalen moment, right? Right. Where, and and because she's not Culver, I mean, she's a great player, all time great player, right? When it yeah. comes to like point guards and 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 women's basketball, but she's not a man, and so 
that movement doesn't resonate as much, right? Can mm-hmm. you imagine if here's Kyle Cover wearing the Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling shirt? <laughs> right, um, in Utah? <laughs> right, or or it would be uh, similar to if he got up there with D-Wade, D- uh, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Ball, and um, who else? And LeBron James when they had the It Starts With Us campaign at the ESPYs. I mean, that's that moment, right? Right. And it doesn't play as big because, you know, she's a woman. And I think, Part of these conversations that we have to do a better job just in general, including women in, in, in these uh, conversations. Um, the last thing I'll say about Kyle Cover when we were talking like pre-show, like what what he should do. Um, one, I think I meant what I mentioned to you is really just kind of I think he did what he needed to do. Right. Um, he in this moment, he acknowledged his privilege. The next step for him is really to figure out how he can help, but not be in the way. Right. You don't want to be a, what I call a gentrifier in the, in this cause, right. Come in and thinking, this is what you need. Um, you know, I'm gonna come in, you know, I'm gonna come in here. I know what I'm doing. Like he needs to, if he's going to be a real, you know, about it, about it. Right. He needs to talk to, I would say the, yeah. the you know, those grassroots orgs, what are yeah. they doing? What do they need? What kind of supplies do they need? How can they use his privilege? How can he use his privilege? Um, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to have his seat at the table um, because mm-hmm. he hasn't been working in this space for all his life. He's new to this. Let the people who've been working in this space have a seat at the table, but make sure they get that seat at the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's an important piece uh, that, you know, he's he's positioned himself now to contribute. He's also positioned himself for, uh, you know, various communities to hold him accountable uh, for his contributions, right? In the sense that, like now, he, you know, you can't just say I have this privilege and I wrote it in this this essay. Uh, but now you have to give, you know, in some ways you have to give some money and a little bit of time. But let's, just, like you said, he doesn't necessarily have to have uh, a seat at the table to determine the direction of these interactions or of these movements, whether they're locally or nationally. Um, but I did did think he did an important call, an important moment in raising awareness of, of the way that white athletes have particular kind of privilege. And in this moment in which we don't see many white athletes who are far more successful and far more famous um, to talk about these kinds of issues, right? We don't see uh, Tom Brady talking about these issues. We don't see, um, you know, some of the leading uh, white players, Mike Trout in, in baseball, right? They're not talking about these issues. Um, and so the fact that Corver used his role and his position to step out uh, should be commended. And that's what we're doing and connecting him to this broader history of, of white allies uh, over the course of the uh, since really since World War II in helping uh, promote and, and extend black athletes participation uh, in uh, collegiate and professional sports. Right, right. And I think that's a perfect note, like to to end on it and just say, like, if you want more information, shameless plug part three, uh, go check out the book. We will win the day. Um, anything else, Derek? Oh, yeah. yes. Please. I want to I want to I want to um, plug uh, Jennifer Lansbury's uh, A Spectacular Leap uh, about black women athletes in the 20th century it has an excellent chapter on Althea Gibson um, in which she talks about Alice Marble's uh, contribution in helping her um, break through the kind of segregated tennis world. So I want to shout that out as well. Yeah. And I'll back that up. Like anybody who assigns books for class, it's the perfect book to assign. Uh, 
for your class, right? Great read, um, has a chapter on Ora Washington, has a chapter on Alice Coachman, uh, Althea Gibson, the Tiger Bells, uh, so Wilma Rudolph, uh, Wyoming Tyus, and Jackie Jordan Corsi. So, so it's a great book on black women athletes, and, and I would highly, highly recommend getting into your classroom. Definitely, definitely. And on your personal shelves for all the other listeners who don't have classrooms. <laughs> all right. Uh, but once again, this is I think this is going to wrap up episode number six. Right. We out. We out. Peace. Peace.